We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 23. There has been a departure of the prophet Samuel from King Saul. Samuel now mourns over the person that he anointed as king over Israel. And I'm sure Saul, uh, rather Samuel, felt partly responsible for this man that he anointed. It's sort of like a child going bad. You can't help but feel responsible if you're a parent. And Samuel mourns for Saul. In Saul, he had such a good start as king. He was small, he was insignificant in his own eyes, but that has changed for Saul. Time has gone by and Saul uh, has experienced victories given by the Lord over Israel's enemies. And this change has come over Saul and if we learn nothing else, we can learn that Saul was unable to handle success. What is that saying? Power corrupts and Saul becomes absolutely corrupted by the power. And this evil process of being lifted up in pride has now captured the heart of Saul. And it's an ugly transition that he's going through. It's, he is no longer small in his own eyes. He is no longer humble before the Lord. And he's caught up into his own importance. And as a king, we can see how that can happen. Saul, he feels no compulsion to be obedient to God. He doesn't feel that God's word is mandatory to him. And he is king now. And he feels like he can call his own shots. And that's because of pride. Pride is a grievous sin. Uh one that is quickly recognized by our Lord and one that is uh, held against us when we're lifted up in pride. But pride is not recognized in our own hearts and lives by ourselves. You're caught up in pride and you're lifted up in pride and you can't see that. And it's a good friend that will come to us and point out that we're being prideful. That is a faithful friend who will bother to do that. We know that Satan was created uh, an archangel, brilliant beyond words. And what brought about his fall? Simply pride. And you can read about that in, uh, I think it's Isaiah. And as we go through our daily walk with the Lord, I urge each and every one of us, pray about pride in your own life. 
it's a it's a great goad that we kick against pride is and god detests pride in any man and especially in believers because we as believers have recognized who god is and how great god is and to be lifted up in pride is it's almost an insult to god proverbs 8:13 tells us the fear of the lord is to hate evil pride and arrogance and evil ways and the perverse mouth god hates so god makes it known that he doesn't appreciate any pride in a believer's life or in any man's life for as that go in pride in saul has caused the lord to declare i regret making saul king over israel now that verse that God regrets troubles a lot of Christians. That's the Lord's way of saying, I regret making or allowing Saul to be king. We read in verse 29 of chapter 15, the strength of Israel is not a man that he should relent. So how do we reconcile these two verses? God's regret, if we can really attempt to understand it, is the people of Israel desired a king and he gave them a king. That's God's regret. God has even said to the prophet Samuel, Hey Samuel, they didn't reject you, they've rejected me. They've rejected me from being God and ruler over them. And God in his compassion... And his love towards us will give us things like kings or other things. But he does it as a concession, knowing full well that usually when he gives us something of our desires as a concession, there is a, an immediate hard lesson that will follow God giving us what we have so desired. I do not always appreciate no's that I receive from God. You pray about something and God says no. And you go, wait a minute, Lord, maybe I didn't explain it to you right. <laughs> but wisdom says accept the no's. It's for our own good. But only God sees thoroughly and completely, and he sees the future as if it were the past. So God loves us enough to tell us no sometimes. It's better to hear a no today than sorrow tomorrow. God is always wanting to give us our best. And Israel's sorrow is Saul as king. And now God is removing Saul as king. He's took his anointing away from King Saul. And so for man's understanding, God declares, I regret having made Saul king. And we understand that. And we're left with a statement. And we're left to ponder how God works. He works many times in ways that we don't understand. 
He says, my ways are not your ways. And so understand God is sovereign. And understand that he loves us and he works for our good. So the lesson there is be careful what you pray and ask God to do on your behalf. Because our desires, if we're not careful, they can be of the flesh. And they can be regrettable. But God is not through with the prophet Samuel. And Samuel mourns for Saul. So let's read 16, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verses 1 through 5. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord says, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then if excuse me, then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Now they asked that because the word has gone out that uh, Samuel hacked the, the king of the Amalekites, hacked him to death, cut him in pieces with a sword. So they're a little bit afraid of this prophet. And the Lord said, or, or Samuel said, I come peaceably, and I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. God has a question for Samuel. How long will you mourn for Saul? Samuel's mourning for Saul is bothering God. God doesn't want it. God has removed him as king, and he doesn't want his prophet to mourn for him. You know Samuel. You understand. You've seen what Saul has done, and you've seen that I have rejected Saul, and I've rejected him for being king over Israel. And that hurts Samuel's feelings. It hurt him. He doesn't understand. Oh, well, he understood, but it's still he mourns for Saul. God will bring change to our lives. He brought great change to Israel at the time. He brought great change in Samuel's life. And change, we sometimes are fearful of change, but change can be a very good thing in our lives. And God is telling Samuel, stop mourning for Saul. I have rejected him from being king. And Samuel is now to go and he's to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be Israel's next king. And God has things, God has deeds, God has purposes for Samuel. And one of them is to anoint uh, one of Jesse's sons as kings. But Samuel, he's afraid. He's afraid of Saul. He's afraid of what Saul's reaction will be. 
if he comes out and say, hey, I'm going to anoint the next king. And God gives Samuel a plan. He says, go take a heifer and offer sacrifices and invite Jesse and his sons to this sacrifice. And we find Samuel, he's there, and he's looking over the oldest son of Jesse, Eliab. And so let's read in verses 6 through 13. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then uh, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? And then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. God speaks and he tells Samuel, I do not look at the appearance of a man, nor his height, not his stature, because Elab, Elab, however you want to say it, is not God's chosen to be the next king. And he says, for God does not see as a man sees. Now we want God to see as we see. That's why we protest at some of his uh, commands to us. We want God to do things our way. But we're wise when we consider that God sees the whole picture. He sees the beginning from the end. And it's to our good to listen to God and his commands to us. And he says, man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Do you know how long it's been since we had a ball-headed president? Ball-headed men find it hard to be elected. I'm not running for pastor. I'm here. You got me. <laughs> I'm it. <laughs> Appearance means so much to us. That's why we listen to people like actors. They're the beautiful people. What a person to listen to, an actor? Someone who plays a part? You're going to say, hey, he's smart. No, nah, I don't think so. But uh, <laughs> God doesn't look at the appearance of a man, and aren't we glad of that? God doesn't allow us to judge, though, matters of the heart. 
because we only see the outward. We can look at behavior and come to a conclusion that that behavior was wrong or that behavior was sinful. But we cannot say why. We cannot say that person did wrong in this matter because they're uh, of this or that. God keeps, God keeps that to himself. He judges the heart. I have a little example. Just this week, on the news, there was a 12-year-old girl who became impregnated by a relative. As I understand it, she wanted to have an abortion because of the possibilities of different difficulties of, of a child from a relative. And her parents said no. But a judge ruled in the girl's favor. And he allowed her to have an abortion without parental consent. Now we can see, you and I, we can see the difficulties that are that just line up there for this young girl. And, and you know, now she's pitted against the parents. And these are deep, heartfelt issues. And I pray that God will be with that family to reconcile that family. And we can easily see that some decisions are too great for us to make a decision on, to give our opinion. And Samuel is going through the seven sons of Jesse, and God is not selecting any of them. Verse 11, Samuel asked Jesse, is this all of your sons? And Jesse replies, hey, there's one yet. He's out with the sheep, and he's the youngest. Samuel tells Jesse, send for him. And this entire sacrifice, this anoint meeting, is on hold till this youngest son arrives, the one that keeps the sheep. Being the youngest son had a stigma attached to it. You were the least important of your brothers. You were the youngest. Jesse, David's father, does not even invite David to this sacrifice where God's prophet is there. David, you stay out with the sheep. No need for you to come in. You, you don't need to be part of this sacrifice. And in fact, we're not even given the name of this shepherd boy until after Samuel anoints him. We read David, he was ruddy, or kind of red-complected, with bright eyes. And that's what ruddy means. Now, some interpret that to mean that he was probably uh, had red hair also, and that's possible. But when you chase back in Jewish history, many of the Jewish scholars think that Adam had red hair. And I thought, why in the world would they think that? Because the red seemed to indicate purity of the gene pool. But, but David, uh, supposed to be red-headed. Now, 
I have two children with red hair. I like their red hair. My daughter likes her red hair. My son hates his. I don't know why. But they say by 2050, there will be no more redheads. I go, wow, who determined that? <laughs> but in verse 12, God tells Samuel, arise, anoint him. This is the one. And Samuel took his horn of oil and he anoints David there in the midst of dad and his brothers. Now, there's an obvious jealousy among his brothers regarding David. Uh, and it will manifest itself when David goes to the battlefront and his brothers I want to know, hey, why'd you leave the sheep? Go back to the sheep, little fella. But notice this. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The Holy Spirit has always been there in the Godhead. Just like Jesus has always been there from creation on. Jesus did not come into existence at Bethlehem. He took on human form at Bethlehem. He took on flesh and he came and dwelt among us. And the Holy Spirit did not come a viable person on the day of Pentecost. He's there in the Old Testament also. And we have God, the Holy Spirit, coming upon David from that day forward. A peculiar thing about David, he was anointed three different times. We have this one that we've just read about in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16. The second anointing was uh, over Judah in 2 Samuel 2, verse 4. That was his second anointing. The third anointing was in 2 Samuel chapter 5, over all of Israel. So David's anointed three times. There is also a threefold work of the Holy Spirit with man. In, with, and upon. We have three prepositions describing the Holy Spirit's work with man in the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit working in our hearts pointing us directing us towards Jesus without the in work of the Holy Spirit none of us would ever choose to align ourselves with Christ we just wouldn't we're dead in our sins in Isaiah 53 6 it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us sheep have gone astray. Not one or two good ones, all of us. And we've all turned to our own way. Not one person of the goodness of his heart has ever chosen Jesus. It has been a good work of the Holy Spirit in us 
to bring us to Jesus for salvation. And once salvation has come about in our life, has occurred, the Holy Spirit is, quote, with us. The second preposition, with us. And God, through his Holy Spirit, lives where? Within us. Never to leave us or forsake us. And so we have the with experience, the mystery, as uh, Paul says, of God living in us. And then we come to the Holy Spirit and we read that he came upon David. We're familiar with the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism uh, by John. And the entire book of Acts is centered upon the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon Believers, Acts 1.8. Jesus, his last words before he ascended into heaven, it was, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, upon you, you will see power to be a witness unto me. The upon experience. Jesus told his disciples, I give you the Holy Spirit. And he says, and he is just like me. What a description. You want to know what the Holy Spirit's like? He's like Jesus. He will dwell in you. He will empower you. And he will come upon you to teach you and to comfort you. In Luke eleven thirteen. We're told how to receive the complete all of the Spirit upon you in your life. If you then, and this is a comparison, Jesus is talking to his disciples. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. All we have to do to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit in, with, and upon us is to ask the Father for him. Now, I come out of a Pentecostal background, and they used to have what they call tarrying meetings. In other words, you would tarry trying to get the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Jesus said, Hey, just ask. That's all you got to do. You're already having the Holy Spirit indwell you because you're a believer. If you want that empowering of the Holy Spirit, just ask God for it. That's all you have to do. And he will give you the gift, the good gift of the upon experience that will turn your life around. Now, you can't say that. Some people receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit when they become born again. That's God's doing, how he gives his spirit in, with, and upon. Others, it's a secondary event in their life. In my life, it was a secondary event, the upon experience. So however God wants to give it to you, allow him to give it to you. But know this, 
desire it. We cannot be a witness unto Jesus apart from the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. The whole book of Acts is centered around verse 8 of chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Urge each and every one of us, dwell with the Holy Spirit. Have him in you and allow him to be upon you. And that will mean you serving the Lord. That's how we serve the Lord through the upon experience. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, we desire your Holy Spirit in all that he has for us to be upon us, to be in us, to be with us. Lord, we need your spirit. We cannot live a victorious Christian life apart from you, the Holy Spirit. So we desire that you give us all of yourself, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you have made your spirit available just for the asking. All we have to do is ask. And you're more than faithful to give us the good gift of your spirit. So we ask, Lord, do that good work. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. May he come upon us and cause us to be a witness unto Jesus. That's our desire, Lord. So do that good work by your spirit in each and every life here. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.